0: Well, we are smack dab in the middle of our series, Brand New, and we didn't title the series Brand New because we were out of original ideas for titles, but because when God sent Jesus into the world, it wasn't to revive something old or to update something old, but to introduce something brand new in the world for the world, brand new for you, brand new for me, brand new for everyone for all of time, that Jesus actually came into the world to bring an end to the temple model of religion and approaching God, and he came to introduce a way of connection with our heavenly Father, that was more simple yet more difficult. It was more clear and it was more personal than anyone had ever imagined. It was something far better than anyone thought possible with every bit of it attached to Jesus himself. No more sacred places that your body and my body, your body is the temple of the spirit of God. No more sacred people. Everyone is on equal footing before God that sacred people actually serve, that sacred people wash feet. And and no more lists of sacred laws. There is a single command to love the way that Christ loved us and to grow in love until our love looks like Jesus' love. And last week, we began to look at our urge to merge, to somehow combine the Jesus model and the temple model. That the Apostle Paul, who early in his life was an expert in the temple model, when he began following Jesus, he became consumed with anger that these new Jesus followers, especially the Galatian followers of Jesus, were drifting from grace, drifting from the Jesus model, because they were trying to do just that, attempting to mix the new with the old, trying to follow Jesus and the temple at the same time. And Paul admonished the Galatian Christians who were doing this, stop trying to mix the old with the new, because when you do, you get the best of neither, and you get the worst of of both. Paul said, we have not been given instructions on how to please God with our actions. We have been given one calling in how we please God. We love others, and that's the only thing that counts. It's the only thing that counts. So as we reach the midpoint of this series, here's a great question and a a question that I hope you might just be asking yourself. How do you know if you've adopted a temple mindset in how you follow Jesus? How do you know if you've adopted a temple mindset in how you follow Jesus or attached a temple mindset to how you follow Jesus? Let's be honest. None of us want this to be true of us, but it's probably somewhat true for all of us. All of us think, yeah, I've resisted the old and I'm bought in with Jesus as new. But let's be honest, as I said last week, there is a little bit of temple in all of us. And especially if you grew up around church or if you grew up around particularly strict versions of church, there's more in you than you would like to think. So here's the best way to know if you've got some temple in you attached to the way that you follow Jesus. The best way to know what's in you is to look at what comes out of you the best way to know what's in you is to look at what comes out of you. If you want to know what's in you, if you want to know what you have accidentally, if you've accidentally embraced the temple and a mindset based on temple thinking, all you have to do is to look at what happens inside of you and what comes out of you. The fruit of the way that you approach God or what comes out of you when you attempt to please God or your natural responses to the things of God or your first thoughts when it comes to connection with God. Here's what it looks like. Let me Give you some temple thoughts and some temple responses. Some ways to know that if you've ever thought this, you have accidentally or unknowingly adopted and attached some of the temple to Jesus. If you have ever wondered how close to sin you could get without sinning, that's the temple. That's the temple model. If you have ever felt more guilt about missing church than about the way you treat someone at work, temple. If you've ever felt more like like I feel so guilty when I miss church. But but I don't really feel that guilty when I treat someone wrong at work. That's the temple model at work in you. If when you fail in sin, you are more concerned with what God would do to you than what you did to the person that you sinned against. That's the temple model model of thinking, the temple model of approaching God. If when you sin, you think there is a ritual toward God that can make you right with God without restitution towards them that's the temple thinking. If, you, if, if when you sin against someone, you think, well, I can, I can pray to God. I can make an offering to God. I can make a sacrifice to God. I can spend enough time in worship, enough time in prayer, enough time at church. I can enough, spend enough time serving other people, serving at the church, that it makes me right with God without actually making restitution with the person that I hurt. That's the temple motto of thinking. If someone else's sin has ever elicited feelings of superiority from you, If hearing about someone else's sin has ever made you feel better about yourself, that's the temple in you. And if your beliefs and theology have ever gotten in the way of loving a person that Jesus loves, if what you believe in your viewpoint has ever stopped you from loving someone that Jesus has called you to love, that's the temple at work in you. The best way to know what's in you is to look at what comes out of you and what happens inside of you. The fruit that your version of following Jesus actually produces. That is just plain true. And if any of that's true of you, let me just say this. That doesn't make you any worse than anyone else because there's a little temple in all of us. There's a lot of that. There's some of that that's in me a lot of the time. But here's what I know. That is the stuff that makes the church and makes Christians so resistible to the world around us. Again, we talked about this the very first week that in our attempt to modernize and and digitize and make make everything more relevant, unfortunately, we forgot to address the gross stuff that comes out of us that is actually the stuff that most people really resist when it comes to following Jesus. And as Jesus followers, we should resist anything in us that makes our savior resistible. We should resist anything in us that makes our Savior resistible to the world around us. Any feeling of superiority, any feeling of self-righteousness, any feeling of I care about what God thinks and forget what they think of me, any feeling of I can be right with God while being wrong with them, we should push back against all of that. We should push back against all of that because those are things that are in us that don't come from Jesus that get in the way of people experiencing Jesus through us. And if there's anything in us that causes someone else to not be able to see clearly Jesus, we need to push back and resist those things and to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not pushing someone away from God that God wants to draw near. Now, Like I said, unfortunately, there's a little temple inside all of us. There was a lot of temple that had made its way into the early church in Galatia. And Paul addressed that and wanted to shut it down then and there. And when Paul wrote, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love, the early church made sure to put that into practice. And so for the first 250 or so years of the church, think of this. The church grew and flourished and spread without a Bible, without a building without church buildings without a lot of what we think makes a church and makes christianity today without any of that the church spread like wildfire this this wildfire this faith in jesus this newfound faith this new thing that jesus had come to bring into the world it spread like wildfire what they had What they had was an unwavering claim and conviction that Jesus was the Son of God, come to the earth to bring the forgiveness of sins by His death and His resurrection. An unwavering claim. They had an unfathomable commitment to genuine community. In other words, life lived loving one another, and they had an unbelievable devotion to serving the world around them, serving Everyone serving the church, serving one another in love, but also serving the other in love. Whether it was believers or not, whether it was as Jews or Gentiles, even the invader and conqueror Romans, everyone was served humbly in love. They had an unwavering claim that Jesus was the Son of God come to the earth. They had an unfathomable commitment to each other, to living life in community, and an unbelievable devotion to serving the world humbly in love. They were known by pagans and Roman officials for two things. They would not waver from their claim that Jesus was the son of God, come from God to clear the path to God. They would not waver from that at the point of death, at the point of persecution, at the point of violence. They would not waver from that. And they would live out the command to love like Christ at great personal cost. They would save children from the practice of exposure. They would risk their own lives to care for the sick and dying in plague-stricken areas. And their faith in Jesus, exemplified by their active love, it changed the world. It captured the attention of a world. It drew people to Jesus like crazy. And then something happened. Something that seemed incredible at the time, but it set the church on a collision course with the temple that would drastically change the trajectory of the church for the next 1,500 years. On October 28th, in the year 312, the emperor Constantine was on the road to battle with his co-emperor to determine who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. While traveling, while on the way to battle, he had a vision of a cross in the sky with an inscription that said, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. He went on to win the battle, and he became a conquering hero of Christianity as he embraced the cross as a symbol, even while not embracing Christianity personally. He birthed what would become known as the Holy Roman Empire. Unfortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately for all of us still 1700 years later, it was far more Roman than it was holy. Constantine, a year later, legalized Christianity. Up to this point, being a Christian was actually illegal. It wasn't persecuted often, but it was illegal. And at this point, Constantine, in 313, one year later, he legalized Christianity. He became a collector of relics. He be, Land and property that had been seized from Christians would be returned or they would be compensated monetarily. Eventually, churches no longer paid taxes, which meant rich people would dedicate their houses and their properties to God because for the first time ever, it it paid to be a Christian. He elevated bishops and priests to higher status. They were no longer servants, they were to be. Served. He built ornate churches where a martyr died. Anywhere he found out that a martyr had died, he would go and he built these large structures, these incredible structures. Some of these still exist today, these beautiful, majestic church buildings. He gave money to people who would take in orphans, which sounds like a great thing, but what, what we have to notice here is it was no longer self-sacrifice, it paid to care. It paid to care. He banned crucifixion. It's so interesting. He embraced the cross as his own symbol while abolishing the practice of crucifixion. Overnight. Overnight. I mean, in one year's time, and over as I mean, so quick that it would make our heads spin if this happened today. Christianity went from a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. Suddenly, Christianity became inseparable from empire. Ironically, Constantine led most of this charge for Christianity while he himself would not actually proclaim Christianity as his own faith until just before his death. Constantine and church leaders together felt effectively built a new version of the temple model. A new version of the temple model. A whole lot of the empire, a whole lot of the temple with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. There would be new holy places as as cities competed for empire money to build more and more beautiful and ornate church buildings so people would come visit and people would come worship because they could get money from the empire and they could get money from people visiting. There would be new holy people, particularly the pope or the papacy was raised to a holy status. These priests, again, they were no longer called to be servants. They were commanded to be the serve. They were the people who had the word of God to give to the people who weren't smart enough to understand it for themselves. There were new holy texts as Constantine led the charge for an official codified approved version of the Christian scriptures. Now, one example, this is fascinating. The, the reason to talk about this is because of where it leads us. But one example of what happened during this time of the templifying, templifying of Christianity is the Aryan controversy. Now, what I'm about to talk about, this is not an actual competing belief, so it shouldn't be competing beliefs today. But these were compete, competing beliefs at that time. Um, there was a controversy that developed over the word begotten was G Je- and the controversy was simply this was Jesus born god or did he become god this was this was the controversy now we fully believe as a church that Jesus was born god he was born fully god and fully man but at this time arius believed Jesus status as god was conferred on him as an adult as a reward for faithfulness early in life. Athanasius and most of the church led the charge against that belief that Jesus was God from the beginning. Constantine didn't want a division in this new holy religion, so he called and he hosted and he presided over a council meeting. He presided over a council meeting in which he still to this point did not personally claim Christianity as his own faith. After the debate, this this debate became a political issue. This belief became a political issue because after the debate, Constantine made a decree, and here was his his decree. And I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. His penalty shall be death. Now, again, we believe, we, we believe that he actually landed on the right side of things. But here's what we actually have to notice. Now, believing the wrong thing about Jesus became illegal. In a stunning reversal of Jesus and Paul and James and Peter, what you believed for the first time in, Christ, in the church history, what you believed trumped how you behaved what you believed was more important than how you behaved. Christianity, in this moment, in the years that would follow, Christianity became creedal. It was belief over behavior. If you notice, in the creeds, there is never any mention of the call to love. Emperors always signed off on the creeds. Constantine would sign off on a number of creeds. Emperors that would follow him would sign off on the creeds, and they made sure the creeds were always beliefs to agree with rather than behavior to live out. They could ignore the command to love, but believe correctly, and it allowed them to to behave terribly toward other people, particularly toward their political rivals or their political enemies. Christians ended up arresting Christians for believing the wrong things about Jesus. Christians persecuted other Christians for believing the wrong things about Jesus. If you wonder where that came from in the Christian church today, ding, dong, ding, it happened right here. No one was ever arrested for mistreating another person. Plenty were arrested for the wrong beliefs. And for the next 1,000 years, this led to terrible things in Jesus' name. This thinking led to the Crusades. It gave rise to unjust uses of papal authority to hunt enemies, of the pope it gave rise to the practice of making accusations about the beliefs of people that leaders simply did not like and it gave rise and it gave rise to the practice of indulgences once it probably gave practice gave rise to the practice of indulgences that you could treat people poorly and sin against someone else while making an offering to god and a priest and appease your own conscience see unfortunately What what looked like such a magnificent thing and such a marvelous thing in the life of the early church, unfortunately, the fruit of that time period, the fruit of that time period that would last for over a thousand years, the fruit of that is is why the Dark Ages became the Dark Ages, or why we refer to them as the Dark Ages. Here's the fruit of the medieval church. It was belief without practice. It was buildings without charity, it was leadership without service and it was personal relationship without communal obligation. It was belief without practice. I can believe, I, 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 as long as I believe the right things, I don't have to behave. My behavior doesn't matter as long as I believe. It was buildings without charity. It was build, build, build. Look at this magnificent house of God and you go to the house of God, but the people of God were not called, no longer required to serve and no longer required to love. It was leadership without service. It was people who sat and spewed the word of God towards people, but did not, were not required to lift a hand to serve or to wash a foot in service. And it was personal relationship without communal obligation. In other words, All of the requirements of doing these things for one another went away because the only thing that mattered in this newfound temple empire version of Christianity was about your personal relationship and your personal beliefs. And for a thousand years, this movement that was supposed to be all about love for one another produced fruit that was no good for anyone. For a thousand years... It produced fruit that was no good for anyone. And then there was a glimmer of hope in the 1500s. The Protestant Reformation began, claiming the church had lost its ways and their and the leaders had abused their power, which was like duh. Anyone paying attention was like, yes, the church has lost its way and leaders have abused their power. This thing was never supposed to get so entwined with the empire. We need to reform. It was Martin Luther and others who condemned the selling of indulgences and in many of the practices that the leadership of the of the church, the leadership of the Catholic church had put into practice over the last thousands of years based on papal authority and priestly authority and things that had were found nowhere in the word of God. Martin Luther and his followers said none of what the church stands for can be found in the Gospels, indulgences, confession that makes you, that clears your conscience without making restitution with the person that you wrong, like all of this is, is like this doesn't exist in the Gospels, this is not to be found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's found all over the Church right now, and so Martin Luther, you might imagine, this, as he protested against the Church, as he called the Church to reform, Martin Luther was excommunicated, which he didn't really care about because he didn't believe the Pope had the right to excommunicate anyone, they stood for Bible, the Bible being translated into common daily language so that scripture would be available to all and for all. William Tyndale was a, was a contemporary of Martin Luther who translated the scripture into English. Martin Luther translated it into German. Martin Luther said this, that a simple layman armed with scripture is mar- mightier than the mightiest pope without it. William Tyndale, William Tyndale, he was burned alive for his translation of the word, for translating the word "ecclesia" from the Greek, instead of into the word church, he was, con- he was burned at the stake, burned alive, for translating the word "ecclesia" into the word congregation. Meaning it's a people, it is not a place. And he was burned alive. For it. The reformers were known for the solas, a couple of them being sola fide, by faith alone. Our, our, our relationship with God is established by faith alone. Or sola scriptura, the scripture, not the church, was the authority for mankind. The pope was not the authority for mankind. The priests were not the authority for mankind. The church was not the authority for mankind, but the scripture stood above us all as the authority for life. And practice as we follow God. And while there was a glimmer of hope that the church would return to its roots of love, unfortunately, in the hands of later reformers, scripture became exactly what papal authority and priestly authority had been before creeds became weapons creeds became weapons. They became tools for casting people out and casting people away. Casting people out and casting people away. Scripture of agreement became a litmus test of one's faith. In other words, if you don't line up with our interpretation of Scripture, you are out. You do not belong. You're not even a Christian. We cast you out. We divide ourselves from you. Scripture agreement became a litmus test of faith. And interpretation of those texts divided the Protestant Reformation into three, and then into nine, and then into 81. And today, there are over forty-five thousand christian denominations in the world because instead of choosing love as a covering over differences of interpretation or differences of church government or difference in who gets to be a leader we all simply divided and 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 cast each other out and cast judgment on one another and cast judgment on one another Love once again took a back seat. You could say it this way, that in the dark ages, buildings were built and structure was formed, but love took a back seat. In the Reformation, abuses were confronted and scripture was elevated, but love once again took a back seat. And here's the, here's the thing that I hope we can understand, and I hope that we never lose sight of this. Anytime love takes a back seat, everyone loses. See, all of those things, they're important. All, everything that we just talked about, like church buildings are actually important. We're a church without a building of our own, but I believe church buildings are important. Like, like ha- having good structure and good organizational leadership in church, I believe that's important. Having, like, having scripture like, as, as, as at the forefront of our minds, it's incredibly important. Our belief matters. Like All of that is important. Uh, uh, confronting abuses, that matters. All of that matters. But all of that should take a backseat to love because love is the only thing that counts. Paul, I mean, Paul reminds the only thing that counts, like you'd say like, if you don't have organizational structure, you can change the world through love. If you don't have buildings, you can change the world through love. If you don't have, like, even if you forget some things about scripture and you're not always sure what to do based on what scripture requires of you, you can always go out and love someone. You can always love the person next to you. And even in the face of abuse, like you can still go out and love, even if the faith, like leaders aren't doing the things that they're supposed to do, every single one of us can go change the world by loving our neighbors and loving the person across the street and loving the people who disagree with us every single one of us can love and in these moments over the last 1700 years unfortunately love took a back seat and anytime love takes a back seat everyone loses the church loses christians lose people who are called to love lose and unfortunately the world around us that needs jesus loses the most See, so, you know, I, I I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, wait, 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 it really sounds Chris. Like, like, like you're talking bad about these people who like really fought for the right beliefs and for believing the right things. So, you know, like. I believe right belief matters. Like right belief matters. What you believe about God matters a whole lot. What you think about what you think matters to God will determine how you approach God and fuel your behaviors. Your belief matters, like there's a quote out there, I believe it was by CS Lewis said like, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Like that's, the, like that's incredibly important. Right belief matters. It will drive right behaviors. Right belief matters, but here's what I would say. Right fruit matters more getting right the things that come out of us to the world around us, to each other, like getting that right actually matters more than whether or not we agree about everything that what flows out of you is the best indicator of what is in you. And if the temple is in you, you will produce fruit consistent with the temple. You will have an inconsistent, never-feel-secure relationship with God that's often filled with hypocrisy, that chooses correct belief over behavior fueled by love, that divides itself from people who don't interpret the text the same way that you do. And Paul, interestingly enough, because Paul believed that your fruit matters more than what than, than every individual belief, because Paul believed that right belief matters, but that the right fruit matters more. Paul actually talked to us. You're like, we haven't even gotten a scripture. yet. We're getting a scripture right now. Paul actually addressed this and talked about this exactly in the next few verses of his letter to Galatians We we'll pick up with the very last verse that we read last week. Galatians chapter five, verse 14. He said, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Another, and here's, this is this is a note to, to, to some of us who sometimes get caught up in in the belief without love, belief over behavior crowd. Paul says that when you get caught up in belief over behavior, in, in you better do this, and this, and this, and this, and it's legalism, and legalism, and, this, and you better do this, and if you're not doing that, I'm going to get it, like. You're biting and you're devouring. You're biting after each other and you are ending up destroying one another and you're destroying the very community that God created you for. You're, you're destroying the very people God called you to love. He says, be careful in that you don't just bite and devour and bite and devour and criticize and judge and criticize and judge. And well, your beliefs are right and my interpretation is better than yours. He says, above all of that, you're called to love because when you love, you fulfill all of the law. All of the law. All of the law is summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't bite and devour. You love. Then he goes on to talk about the fruit that comes from us. He says, so I say, so I say let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, when you, when you follow that temple that's inside of you, when you follow your own sinful desires, When you follow your own sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And he says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what's ironic about this is he was not writing this to people who did not believe in Jesus. He was writing this to people who did believe in Jesus, but because they were full of the temple, because they were leaning back into the temple, they were at risk of falling back to all of this even while they followed Jesus. Jesus. And ironically enough, you find every bit of that behavior in the temple model in churches and in Christians who embrace a temple mindset. That is the fruit of thinking God only cares what you do at certain places at certain times. That's how you live if you think that how you live in relationship with other people doesn't matter. And you can hurt other people and you can hurt other people and you can step over other people and you can step on other people and you can abuse other people and you can mistreat other people as long as you give enough in the offering and as long as you worship loud enough, and as long as you as long as people see, see you praying long enough. Like that's how you live. That's the fruit of that life. Hypocrisy, anger hostility toward the world around us, idolatry where we worship something or someone on the level of God. These things all flow out of our nature and our nature is and always will be the temple model and the temple mindset. And so Paul, as he talks about the fruit of the sinful nature, the fruit of the selfish nature, he's addressing the fruit that always comes out of the temple. When you look at the fruit that came out of the medieval church and the dark ages church and the fruit that came from the reformation church, like like there's there's great things that came out of each, but So much of the fruit that came out of those was exactly what we just talked about hypocrisy, idolatry, worship of things that are not God, placing things that are not God and things that God did not call us to ahead of the thing that God ultimately called us to do. That's the fruit of the temple. That's the fruit of the sinful nature. That's the fruit of the selfish nature. But Paul tells us there is another and a better option. He says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives this kind of fruit, and we should pay attention to this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he drops this, this line at the end. He says, there is no law against these things. There is no law against these things. Now, let me break this down really quick. He says, what, what the Spirit of God living in you in response to you loving the way that Christ loves, here's the fruit that your life will produce, in 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 contrast to the fruit that the temple will build, in in fruit in in contrast to the fruit that your selfish nature will will produce, in in contrast to the to the sinful nature that your that your that your that your nature will produce. Here is what the Spirit of God living in you, pushing you towards loving like Jesus loved the world. Here's what that will produce in and through you. It will produce love for others. It will produce joy found in Jesus and in community with others. It'll produce living at peace with God and at peace with others. It will produce patience for others. It will produce kindness towards others, meaning a kind disposition, meaning that your demeanor is kind by default. It will produce goodness towards others, that even in those moments where your demeanor isn't kind, your actions can still be kind, and you can still be good. Faithful to God and faithful to others, meaning that you don't turn your back on God, and you don't turn your back on fellow men in time of need. It means that you're gentle with others. Where, you want, where, where your selfish nature would be harsh and hostile, you will be be gentle, and you will be self-controlled in relationship with others, not doing what I want to do, but knowing what I ought to do. And and, and here's the most amazing thing about that. Paul at the end of it says, against these things, there is no law. There's no law against these things. And do you want to know why there is no law against these things? Because every bit of the fruit that the Spirit of God produces is good for you and good for those around you it's good for you and it's good for those around you. You becoming more loving is good for you and it's good for those around you. You becoming more kind is good for you and good for everyone around you. You becoming more patient is good for you and good for everyone around you. You becoming more gentle instead of stepping all over people, it's good for you and it's good for everyone around you. Paul says in a temple model and a Temple mindset you need a lot of law to restrain all the evil and all the bad that comes from you and from your sinful and your selfish your temple desires, but in the Jesus way, you simply embrace the Spirit of God at work in you, bringing conviction to make you more like Christ, and as you become more like Christ, you'll become more self-controlled, and more loving, and more gentle, and more kind, and more patient, and you'll find more joy, and you'll live with more peace, and the law isn't really necessary for you at that point, because everything that comes out of you is good for you and is good for everyone around you, and you don't really need the law for that, because it doesn't need to, the law does not need to restrain when good comes. Comes from you. And if you're wondering how to leave the temple behind and embrace the Jesus way, Paul had one final thought. In verse 24, he said this Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. So you want to leave the temple behind? How, how, how do we leave the temple behind? We take it to the cross of Christ and we let it die with Jesus. How do you let your sinful desires die? You take them to the cross of Christ and you allow them to die there with Christ. How do you make sure the tendency to believe without acting in love is left in the past? You take that tendency and you nail it to the cross of Jesus Christ and you let it die there. See, the good news of Jesus is not just that he died for the forgiveness of your sins. He did, and that's good news, and that's incredible news. The good news of Jesus is also that he died to free you from you. He came to free you from you, and He came to free you from the fruit of everything that your your sinful nature and your selfish nature and the temple nature that is in all of us, He came to free us from all of that, and your tendency to cling to the temple and your tendency to believe without love and your sinful nature and your selfish nature, He came to free you from all of that. He came, and when He died, He carried all of that to the cross and on the cross so that you and I could be free from it. And when he came out of the grave, all of the sin and all of the selfishness and all of the temple nature, it stayed buried in the grave of Christ unless you and I go pick it back up. So here's the final thing that I want to say as we close today. If you want to live in Jesus' brand new if you want to live and be the brand new that Jesus has called you to be, if I want to be the brand new that Jesus has called me to be, then we all need to stop bringing back to life what Jesus died to kill. It's time for all of us to stop bringing back to life what Jesus died to kill. To stop going back to our sinful nature when Jesus died so that that could die. To stop going back to our selfishness because when Jesus died, he died so selfishness could die. To, to, to die to the temple thinking that there's special places and special people and special texts that, that connect me with God. And if I just give enough offering and if I just believe the right things and if I just do this, it doesn't matter how I behave towards other people. Like that, He, he died so that all of that could die and be left in the past. And that the only thing that we would live for would be his resurrection life and his calling to love that's what Jesus died for. Jesus died so that that stuff in you and that stuff in me, it could die once and for all. And the only reason it ever comes back to life is us reaching into the grave and pulling it back out. And so for some of us today, I would say if it's it's, it's time for us all to leave the past in the past, to leave what's dead in, in the grave, and to stop bringing back to life what Jesus died to kill, Jesus came to the earth to set us free, to put to death the old in us so that the brand new could take hold. So let's resist that urge to merge. Let's resist the urge to reach back into the grave. Let's resist the urge to reach back toward the temple. Let's resist that urge to run back to our conscience. Let's instead bear the fruit that the spirit wants us to bear. Let's resist all the stuff that comes from us that makes it easy for people to resist Jesus. And let's fight to live in the freedom that Jesus came to bring us and let's live in his brand new and his living way. It's possible for you and it's possible for me to live in Jesus' new and to bear the fruit that Jesus' new calls us to. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace for us. Thank you for the new that you have invited every one of us into through Jesus. Thank you for his calling to love. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for his resurrection life. And God, that when he died on the cross, he died to set us free from our sin and our selfishness and the temple and anything that would hold us back from everything that you want us to experience in connection with you. Thank you that all of that died when Jesus died on the cross. And God, thank you that as long as we don't reach back into the grave, it stays dead. So God, give each of us the wisdom to stop reaching back into the grave, to stop reaching back into the past, to stop reaching back to our conscience, to stop reaching back to the temple, to stop reaching back toward legalism, to stop reaching back towards the things that we grew up with, to stop reaching back toward anything that is less than you and your new. God, we want to live for you. We want to follow you. We want our lives to reflect the fruit of your spirit at work inside all of us. So God, would you bring that fruit out of us? Would you bring love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control out of us more and more and more as we lean into your spirit and as we lean away from the things of the past. Help us to love you. Help us to follow you. Help us to bear the fruit that you have called us to. We pray this all in Jesus' strong name, amen.